I told Chris to move this thing down, and he was like, I got you. I'm not that short, man. Come on. A little height on that thing. Okay, so good morning. Um, I've been told by someone uh, here that um, I'm, I'm saying this to kind of warn you for later on this afternoon when we go into the garage for the impact meeting. Um, there's been a Lyra sighting at the church here today. So it's pretty amazing. But um, as you know, a little girl who doesn't speak English probably doesn't want 100 kids rushing at her in full force, you know. So just, just if she does come down here later on, just be like, you know, hey, you know, and not like rushing towards that little girl, um, as I know that all of us want to do. So we're trying to um, do the best we can to kind of help her assimilate here. I'm sure big, big changes for her. Um, so not even sure if Kim's going to make the meeting. I said we're preparing as if you're not going to make it, but if you make it, great. We understand. You have a lot going on right now. So today we're continuing our series. Um, I read recently that six out of seven high school students that graduated um, said that their youth group did not adequately prepare them for what was next for them. Six out of seven said that. I know most of the time you hear stats like, uh, you know, six out of seven drop out of church, and, and it's, it's more like indicting you guys for walk away from your faith. But I actually want to talk this morning a little bit about how those of us that are leaders like myself, we've got to be challenged to say um, when, when students don't feel prepared for what's next for them, that's a big deal. And we need to take responsibility for that. So that's why we're doing a series like this. Or we're talking about questions that often keep people from faith. Um, I want to thank uh, Tyler for doing an amazing job last week on the topic that he was given. So big props to that. So thankful. And then you'll hear from other leaders in the coming weeks as well as we continue the series. Um, but so grateful for that. So we broke the series into two parts. We broke it into questions and reasons. We first dealt with questions that are keeping people from faith. We covered those. And... If you're a skeptic, we've been trying to show how, if you're a skeptic about all of this, we, we, we're trying to show, we, we've not really proven anything. I'm not trying to say we've proven something by the first few weeks of the series, but we're simply trying to show you how your questions are often based on some, some faith issues or, or some faith premises. Um, there are questions that you have that still have a faith premise. We've tried to show you that. And, uh, and these questions are often keeping people from faith. We've also tried to show you that even though many will say that Christianity requires faith, and it does, that your questions require faith as well. There's this idea out there that the Christians are standing on this pedestal of faith, and the skeptic is standing on this pedestal of reason and logic. And it's simply not the case. It might appear that way, but the person asking the questions, they're still standing on a pedestal of faith. There's no way to escape faith, is the, is the big idea for the first few weeks of the series. So we're taking a turn now in the series. We're now turning towards reasons, reasons for faith. We answered a lot of questions, now we're talking about reasons for faith. Before we get to these reasons, I want to see how the last few weeks have impacted you. This is going to require some honesty. I know this is church, not the place for that. But I would love to get a read on the room. And have you raise your hand as I say these. 
I'm going to say the question we discussed over the last several weeks. I'm going to put them on the screen. And if that question has ever been a question you've had or something you've wrestled with, I want you to shoot your hand up, all right? Hopefully at some point, everyone's going to raise their hand at some point throughout this exercise, okay? So the first one is we answer the question, how can there be just one true religion? Raise your hand if that was ever a question that you had. Raise it high. Be proud about your doubt, people. Come on. All right. How about the next one? How can a good God allow suffering? Raise your hand. Okay. Isn't Christianity a straight jacket? Raise your hand for that one. Some of you are like, I don't even know what that is. Listen to the podcast. My wife did an amazing job on that talk, so listen to it. Um, isn't the church responsible for injustice? Raise your hand. I'm glad that all two of you are here that Sunday. We did that talk. How can a loving God send people to hell? Okay. I guess the rest of you are like, I have no problem with that whatsoever. People are evil, man, evil. Hasn't science disproven Christianity? Okay. And can we really trust the Bible? Raise your hand if that was an issue for you. Okay, good. Looks like suffering was the one that almost many of you had an issue with, which we understand that. So I'm going to read a text here, and then I'm going to have you guys do a couple questions at your tables here starting off. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, looking at verses 18 to 20. I actually get to teach the same text I taught in the main service last Sunday, so it's kind of worked out pretty well. I added a couple of verses here to it. But Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, and it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, I rarely just read a text and then say, discuss. But do your first two questions at your tables. Right now, go and do questions one and two at your tables. All right, so you've had some time for a couple of questions at least. So I've always loved this text for a lot of reasons, but I think what you see in, the, in this passage is that uh, sin has this suppressing feature about it where it suppresses the truth, and it happens in, in various ways. Uh, sin and evil can suppress the truth about God. So you may have heard people say things like, blindness, like, so spirit, we're all born spiritually blind, so blind, spiritual blindness leads us to sin, of course, but whenever you and I walk off into sin, there is this hardening effect that takes place, and sin can cause greater blindness. I think my wife mentioned that, someone her talk that she gave on Christianity being like a straitjacket, or feeling like a straitjacket. So sin can um, lead to blindness, further blindness, and we cannot see the truth. So there is this the element of unrighteousness and, and sin. When we pursue it, it can suppress the truth, not just in our lives and how we see it, but also in the lives of other people. I'll show you how this works. One of the things that you all said um, really affected you is the topic of suffering. Almost everyone raises their hand for that, that topic. And 
when we think suffering, most of us think of just disease, but obviously it's a lot more than that. Suffering can happen at the hands of someone else doing great evil. And so if you talk to people who have had great evil done to them and horrible things done to them, very often they will say, I can't believe that God exists or that God is good because of what happened to me. So sin also has this element suppressing the truth when things happen to us that are evil that someone else may have done it has an effect on us where many people will say i can't believe in a god or a good god because of what happened to me so you see someone else doing sin to you can have this suppressing element in how you view god you will not see the truth of who god is because of what evil might have been done to you. It's how it affects us. So this passage also says that we can look at creation, though, and we can know some things about God. We're going to call them clues for the sake of this talk. Now, how many of you all love, like, detective shows or, like, murder mystery shows? Now, I don't know what's, what's popular now in that genre of, I know there's, like, the CSI. There's, like, a million of those. Law and Order. Isn't that like for old people, Law and Order? You guys watch that? There's CSI, there's Law and Order. Is that really it? Then there's like Netflix stuff happening, of course. So, so there's, um, there's all kinds of murder uh, and detective shows, right? But here's what happens at a crime scene. A detective rarely finds just one clue that's like, this is the clue that solves the entire mystery. What, what normally happens is they find a constellation of clues. When they begin to put them all together is when they start to build their case. They rarely find that one magic uh, clue that just solves everything. It's usually a, a bunch of clues that all work together, and then a case is made. So clues are different than proof. We cannot prove God or Christianity. That might be surprising for you to hear a pastor say that. We cannot prove God and Christianity, but we can see a lot of clues, some strong clues that point us to the reality that God indeed does exist. We're going to look at some clues today. The first is the clue of creation. Simply put, how did we get here? Why is there something instead of nothing? If you think about if you're someone that, that questions these things, or you're a skeptic, but then you really start to think about, okay, you're standing on this, this, what seems like this huge globe at the moment, and that globe is orbiting around a star, the sun. Other planets are doing the same thing. And then you think of the, the vastness of the universe that we live in. And then many universes beyond that. And you think of all those things working together, and you start to see the miraculous nature of the world in which you and I live. And it might be a little easier to see how a miracle in the Bible might happen when you consider we're standing on a speck of dust in a galaxy living our lives, and that's a pretty miraculous thing just by itself. So there's the clue of creation that we're even here is a miracle, I think. Some of the world's greatest scientists 
who are not Christians still will point to a God-like being having to have been the one that, that possibly designed all of this. This guy, Stephen Hawking, who was not a Christian, he said this, The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think they are clearly religious implications. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. A guy who wasn't even a Christian still could not get away from the idea that there must be someone who caused all of this. He was never a Christian, but he saw God's fingerprints everywhere. Here's how some atheists refute his claim. There's a guy named Richard Dawkins, this guy on the screen here. And he, who laughed at it? Is he funny? I don't know if he's funny looking. I guess he is. I don't know. Um, he says this doesn't prove God's existence. His argument was this. He says there are billions of galaxies in the universe over billions of years, and it's inevitable that some of them are going to be so fine-tuned just by chance to sustain our kind of life. We just happen to be on one. And so here we are. So that's his explanation for how we are where we are. It's just there's, by chance, billions and trillions of possibilities. We happen to be on one that has the possibility. Therefore, it's perfect for human life and all that exists with us. And he says, and I will say this, he's right in the sense that we cannot, that doesn't prove God's existence. What I just said to you does not prove God's existence. But here's a rebuttal that um, this next guy, Alvin Platinga, who looks like Abraham Lincoln. Uh, this was his argument. He's a Christian philosopher. This is his argument as to um, how he kind of refuted Dawkins' um, argument I just laid out for you. Now, this, in, this is an analogy that involves the game of poker. I need somebody with a good poker face. Bryce Richardson. Get up here, man. Come on. Come on up on the stage. All right, so um, this will be very, very quick. But uh, these are the, the cards that that magician guy gave me, so don't expect anything shady at all. Um, so I got a deck of cards right here, and I'm just going to deal you, like, five cards like we do in poker, okay? So you get a card. I get a card. All right, man, so look at your hand right there. Okay, so do you, know, do you know poker? Do you know how to play poker? Do you know poker hands? You don't know you don't. I thought you would know these things. This is okay. I can just tell you. It'll be, it'll be fine. All right, so I want you to show your, 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 your hand there to the crowd and see if they think it's a good hand. Just show it to them. Do you know what that is? You guys know what that is? That is a full house. That is a pretty good, pretty good hand right there. Unfortunately, though, I have four aces, all right? I've got four of a kind aces, so my hand actually beats his hand, okay? And so here's, here's the argument that this guy, Plantinga, like well, the argument he used to refute Dawkins' claim. Here's what he said. He said, to, to say that we just happen to live in a world that just... This is where human life can exist. He said, would be like if I were like a poker dealer, and if I were to deal myself 20 straight hands, 
of four aces. If, if I did that, what would the people around the table start to think? Cheater, right? Like, I probably would be killed by about, like, number 15, right? And so they would start to think that, okay, they'd know I, w- I was a cheater. And so his argument goes, um, you would assume that I cheated. Now, what if I had said, well, listen, I know this looks suspicious, but what if there's an infinite number of galaxies out there and there's this one place where the possibility of getting four aces 20 times in a row can happen. We just happen to find ourselves in that place right here and right now. Would that argument work with the people that I'm playing poker with? You say yes. <laughs> so most of us would say, you can grab a seat now. Give him, give him a hand. He did awesome. Yeah. No, most of us will look at that and say, that's not reasonable. Like, is it possible? Yes, it's technically possible. We would say it's unreasonable. And this is what argument that Plantinga uses to refute Dawkins to say, yeah, it's possible, but it's still unreasonable for us to think that all of this just happened. And I would say that the universe happening in that way would be even a, 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 a less of a chance than what I just described to you with the poker analogy. So this is his analogy he uses to refute Dawkins' claim. Now, I want to show you how um, this leads to our next clue, the clue of the cosmos. It seems like Earth was expecting us, scientists will tell us. For life to exist, there has to be great precision. And this ties into the last argument a little bit different, though. I want to give you a quote um, by a guy named Francis Collins. If you're a guy and your name is Francis, you are destined for nerdy greatness. I will tell you that right now. So, yes, this guy is a believer, but he has some different thoughts about science. Here's what he says about the world. He says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. And this is where it gets really convoluted here. Just pay attention. He's, he's a total nerd. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., which you should know what that is, that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, which we all know what that means, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce there would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. Now, I understand that because it was all English, but beyond that, it is very, very confusing. He's a much smarter man than I will ever be. But at one time, he did not believe in God. Then he started to believe in God because he was, he was the guy in charge of the Human Genome Project. He's a really, really smart guy. And he became a Christian as he began to look at design and look at the, the small, small, tiny chance this would ever happen apart from there being a creator. I think what he's saying here, you've, you've always heard the argument, people have said things like, you know, if we were, it's usually a guy that's not really as smart as this guy saying, you know, you know, if we were like one inch closer to the sun, we'd all burn alive. <laughs> or one inch further away, we'd all freeze to death. I've always wondered, like, if we all just kind of, like, went like this, like, really fast, we'd be, like, throw the earth off its, you know, orbit slightly. Um, If everyone in unison did that. But that's the idea, right? This is the idea that he's pointing at. 
as he talks about this, the clue of the cosmos. Next, we have the clue of nature's laws. Trivia question for you. I know it's Sunday, but what temperature does water boil? I'm hearing a lot of numbers. What temperature does water boil? I heard... 212 Fahrenheit. Someone said Celsius. This is America, people, not Europe. What are you doing? We don't deal with Celsius. This is like whatever. 212 Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Celsius is the temperature at which water boils. Another question for you. How about tomorrow? What will it be? What will it be tomorrow? 212 degrees, not a trick question, Fahrenheit, tomorrow, same tomorrow. Next week, same temperature, correct? Now listen, this might sound crazy, but there are people that will say there is no real reason why our earthly laws stay the same. Like there are many that will say we don't even know why they stay the same, but they do. We take them for granted. So gravity, of course, works the same way. When my daughter was really, really small, I loved to play this game. We just called it the throw my daughter up in the air game. And it was fun for me and for her. And I would throw her so high in our living room, and she would just love it, and she would laugh, and she would just go up and down, up and down, up and down. What if, what if one day I go outside and I'm throwing her up in the air, and just she just goes up like a helium balloon just one time? Like, it just happens. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Sienna. I didn't know it was going to be one of those days where the laws of gravity somehow just change on us, right? Like, we know that's not going to happen because the laws of nature stay the same here on the earth, right? And I think we take this for granted. There are, listen, most scientists and most normal people would say that's just the way it is. But talk to a philosopher who is not normal, and you will learn, they will say they have no idea why nature's laws stay constant. They just do. It seems like someone is holding all of this together. The next clue is the clue of beauty. Everyone's like, ooh, where's this going to go? The clue of beauty. Now, when, when kids are young, when my kids were young, I never pulled out pictures and said, okay, you see these pictures of these mountains? This is what we call beautiful. You see these pictures of this landfill? We don't call this beautiful. This is ugly. Like, I never had to teach my kids between, like, beauty and ugly when it comes to landscapes and, and those kinds of things because there's just something in us when we see things and we just say, that's beautiful, we just know to call it beautiful. It's true of music. It's true of beaches, mountains, nature. We see beauty around us, and we know to call it beautiful. Something in us just stands in awe. What if I took a, a group trip? It'd be a fun, like, high school group trip, right, to go to the Grand Canyon all together, right? Um, maybe it wouldn't be fun. I'd take that back. That'd be a boring trip. But Let's say we all go to the Grand Canyon together, and as we walk to the edge, anyone here ever been there before? Raise your hand. 
Oh, so you guys have already been. So you guys are not invited on our trip. We'll take everyone else. But as we walk, listen, as we walk to the edge of the Grand Canyon, and everyone for a moment stands in hushed amazement at what's in front of us, and one of you just goes, wow, that's just, that's just beautiful. And then what if someone else said to you, prove it? How do you know that's beautiful? And we'd all be like, we're just going to throw you off right now, like the edge. Like, why are you saying this? If, you say, if, you, if someone says that, prove it, on what basis do you call it beautiful, we'd look at you like you're crazy because there's something in all of us that just knows that certain things are just, they resonate with us, and we just know that it's, it's beautiful, right? And we can't prove that beauty exists, but there is a certain truth in beauty that resonates with the human soul. And we all have that to a certain extent. And the question is, if Romans 1 says that everything created, created tells us something about the creator, what if God gave us this thing in our souls to recognize beauty so that we'd stand in awe of him and who he is? If everything created points to who God is and shows us something about God, then what if the clue of beauty shows us there's something in us that God put within us that we all know is there, we can't prove it, but we know that it's there. So we'd stand in awe of him. The next we have the clue of love. Now the Bible says in 1 John four nineteen that we love because he first loved us. So but taking that away for a moment and not trying to get into the Bible too much, I want to talk to the skeptics if they're here in the room. But this is ultimately why we love because he first loved us, but this is why your heart gets so caught up in this thing called love. It seems divine because it is divine. It's come from God. Our culture, as you know, is obsessed with this idea. They're obsessed with love. Songs, movies, everything. It's really hard to watch anything or hear anything musically where it's not something about love. And I will ask you this question. If there is no God, then what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Baby, don't hurt me. I love that over there. Yes. Look at this. This is awesome. Yes. You guys hit that like on cue. On cue. Wow. That was amazing. That was amazing. I'm just trying to make sure you're paying attention. That's all. I'm like waking you up, you know. So, but it's a valid question. If there is no God, listen, if there's no God, this thing that we call love is nothing more than reactions just firing off in your brain, chemically. That's all it is if there's no such, no such thing as God. Imagine if you got a Valentine's card, and instead of saying, I love you, it said, when I'm in close proximity to you, there is a biochemical response in my brain. What if that's what you said in your Valentine's card? Now, if you're a rocket scientist, that's probably what your card says. All right? That's probably how you think. But something in us tells us that we are more than chemicals and cells and molecules. There's something that goes beyond all that that can't be explained. 
And I would tell you that it points to this idea that God, this, this love that we talk about among us, is ultimately a gift from God. Then we have the clue of desire. If there's no God, then why do you and I desire one? Have you noticed a pattern that every culture, in some sense, is religious? There is no culture. There have been cultures that they've tried to found certain cultures on atheism. It's not worked out too well. But every culture has some element of religion. So if there's no God, why do we desire one? C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, if I find in myself desires nothing in this world can satisfy, I can only conclude that I was not made for this world. We desire all sorts of things here on the earth. We desire food, so there's food. We desire sleep, and there is sleep. We desire relationship, and there are relationships. Everything you and I desire, there seems to be something to meet that desire here on this earth. However, if we find in ourselves this desire for God, then wouldn't that be a clue that there must be one? Why would humans ever invent the concept? It's not to our gain, really. It's not to our gain at all. Again, it doesn't prove God's existence, but it gives us a strong clue. Lastly, we have the clue of morality. We've covered this a little bit earlier in the series. If a friend, if a friend struggles to believe that God exists, try this conversation with someone. If you have a friend that struggles with God's existence, just ask him this simple question. Is there anything happening in the world right now that you think is evil? And just see what they, how they respond to that question. Don't, don't ask us in an interrogating way, but just ask them in a nice way. Anything happening right now that you would, you would call evil in the world? And they might say just a host of things. I don't know. And then just ask them this question. So why, why would you call that particular thing evil? And just see how they respond to that. And just ask them questions. Because I would say that everyone, no matter where they stand with God, believes something is wrong with the world. And they see certain things as right and certain things as wrong. And C.S. Lewis makes a strong case for this in his book, Mere Christianity, that this understanding of morality could not have evolved and could not be from within us. It has to come from outside. And I don't have time to go into all of his arguments on that, but it's a great book. Read it, Mere Christianity. And he talks about that, how this understanding of morality has to come from the outside, it has to come from, from God outside. It cannot come from, it didn't evolve within humanity and just arrive on its own within humanity. Because what we do, whenever things are, we say, say things are evil or not evil, we appeal to an authority that's not ourselves. Even the unbeliever, in some sense, appeals to an authority that's not us. And they do it all the time with morality. And so if there's no God, then on what basis do we call anything evil? And again, these are not proofs. I've not proven anything to you this morning. These are clues. When you put the clues together, they begin to point to strong, strong case for there being a God. Okay? We'll get to more specifics on Christianity later on in this, in this series, but I think the clues are overwhelming for the, the evidence that God exists. Again, Romans 1 reminds us people can see enough general revelation, clues, so they're without excuse, and they should respond to the special revelation and how God's revealed himself through Scripture and the life of Jesus. 
And so there's one more thing, though, standing in the way. Because you and I could have all these clues and believe that God exists. You might believe that, but you might not call yourself a Christian. There's one thing still standing in the way of someone coming to faith in Christ. And I want to take you to Revelation chapter 9, looking at two verses. These will seem out of left field, but they're going to make sense in a minute, trust me. Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. And in this passage, right before this particular, these particular verses, in Revelation 9, it's talking about the end of all things, the end of the world. And this is the apocalyptic literature, the you know, Re- Revelation. In Revelation 9, it talks about one-third of the earth's population being wiped out with plagues. One-third of the earth's population wiped out with plagues. Then Revelation 9, verses 20 and 21, is the reaction of the people who were still living. Watch this. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. I bring this passage up because it's describing the last days, and these people see one-third of the earth's population die from plagues. And the two-thirds that are left, they still don't repent. They still don't turn to God. So what is the one thing? You can have all these clues for God, but what is the one thing that keeps us from coming to know Christ and wanting to follow him? And it's really this. It is, it is this sin of unbelief. It is the unwillingness to repent and turn to him, right? It's easy to look at our world and think that we have an information problem. We have a heart rebellion problem. We can have all the clues, all the evidence in front of us, yet still turn our back on God and walk away from him in unbelief. About a week ago, I was with my son. I took him into a Starbucks over there in Belton. And I walked in, and I saw a student that I used to have in here all the time when he was in high school. I haven't seen him probably in nine years. And I, he looks at me, and he's kind of got this, Dave? And I'm like, I didn't, I'm not going to say his name, but I'm, I said his name. And, and so we start talking. I've not seen this kid in probably nine or ten years. We sat and talked for over an hour. And if I see you years after you graduate, I'm going to eventually start asking questions like, so, hey, where's your faith at right now? Just talk to me. Like, be honest. You know, be honest with me. You know, don't say what you think I want to hear. And we talked for over an hour about where he's at. And he said, I have no problem telling you that I don't consider myself a Christian at all. And he's, he's read. He has studied. He has traveled the world. I mean, his dad used to be a deacon here at our church. I mean, he did impact. He did everything that you guys are doing. Everything. And he is so intelligent. I mean, he's He's challenging me and getting me to think about stuff. And I'm like, I need to go read that guy. I need to go read that guy. I need to read that guy. And we're talking through these things. I'm asking him questions. And here I am sitting here looking at this person. I'm saying, and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, here's someone. He knows all the clues. We've discussed all these things when he was here in high school. But it was very, it was very evident to me as we, be, we continued to talk. I don't really think that it's just these intellectual questions that are keeping him from faith and belief. I think there's some other stuff going on. I think sometimes we, 
we often hide behind these intellectual questions as a smokescreen. What's really happening sometimes is there's just this rebellion in us. We're just like, I don't really want there to be a God. I don't like the implications for my life if there's a God. I'm not saying his questions aren't legitimate. I'm just saying I think many of us, we hide behind these intellectual questions as a smokescreen. What's really happening is a heart rebellion inside the heart. And I want this series to bring you to a place where those excuses, some of the questions, are kind of tabled. We're trying to answer those for you so that you're faced with, you're faced with the reality that it's really sin that separates you from God. And many times, we don't want there to be one because we have this heart rebellion against God. We want that to be what you come to grips with as you walk through the rest of this series. So you see your need for Jesus. You see your need for a Savior. So we're going to close there. Go ahead and do the rest of your questions at your tables for a few minutes.